0: How is everyone? Okay, why don't you get your Bibles out, or your iPad out, or your iPhone out, whatever it is. Two passages I'd like you to get, uh, look up and have ready to read. The first one we'll do is Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19, and then if you would also find 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 4, I'm going to read a couple sections as we begin this series on the building of the church. So in Ephesians 2 I'll wait for the pages to stop rustling, because I love it when you're reading. I think they should put on your iPhone and iPads pages ruffling when you turn them. <laughs> Ephesians 2:19: "Now, therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone in whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the spirit now first peter chapter 2 and verse 4 Speaking of Jesus, coming to him, in other words, coming to Jesus as to a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious. You also, as living stones, are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Verse 9. But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, who once were not a people, but are now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. Praise the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that we are your church. And we're thankful, Lord, for this transaction that happens through faith, that you have made us alive together in Christ. By grace, we have been saved. And Lord, I am praying for anyone that's in this room during these studies or even this morning that does not know you. We're asking, Lord, in Jesus' name, as for us, so for them, that you would speak to our hearts, give us ears to hear, draw us to yourself, I pray, and may your word, living and powerful, have its impact in changing our lives for our good and for your glory. So we commit this to you, Holy Spirit, anoint, bless, break fresh, and feed us. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. So we're beginning this new series on the building of the church. Three thoughts by way of a somewhat lengthened introduction to the series that I would give three words to. Building, praying, and loving. Building. This concept has been floating around in my head for about 20 years. I don't know if that's good or bad, um, but whatever. (laughs) I've used it for discipleship classes. I've mentioned it in some of our Focus Sunday messages, but I've never taught it as a series. The building of the church, the word building, is a play on words as we begin this morning. It's more of a verb than it is a noun. Now, when we talk about the church as a noun, it's us. We are the church. So when we talk of the church, it's not a building in that sense, it's us. And we are being built together for a habitation of God in the Spirit. So we are to exemplify, as the church, there are things that we need to be doing that should be indicative of the church. So there are four buildings. Number one, a temple. And this is the building of sanctification. Secondly, we are a home which is the building of edification. Third, we are a school, which is the building of instruction. And finally, we are an embassy. Now, all these are scriptural things that we'll get into, two studies on each of these buildings. As the embassy, we are the building of reconciliation. So I'm praying that as we go through this series, and I hope you'll join me in praying, that you and I, his church, those of us who have been saved by grace through faith, through the blood of Jesus, will be built up in our faith in Jesus Christ and what he has accomplished for us as Christians. That God's spirit will work through God's word to change us, God's people. Now, Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Uh, He said in one of his relational metaphors in John chapter 15 and verse five, he said, Jesus, I am the vine you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him will bear much fruit. For apart from me, you can do what? Nothing. So we need God to work in us to willing to do of what pleases him. It's his work of building us, us up by his spirit through his word in our most holy faith. The psalmist put it this way. Psalm 127 verse 1. Unless the Lord builds a house, they labor in vain who build it. Paul the Apostle put it this way, 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 5, and by the way, I'm going to be giving you lots of addresses, and I want to do that so that you can take notes for your home group and bring these things and look them up as the Lord would lead. So as I give the addresses, you have your bulletin, you can take notes, write them down, and if you'd like to get the notes themselves, I'm happy to send them. Paul the Apostle put it this way in 1 Corinthians 3 verses 5 through 8. He asked a question to the Corinthians who had a lot of problems in their church. He said, Who then is Paul? Because the Corinthian church is saying, oh, we're going to worship Paul. We're going to worship Peter. He's the man. He's the man. Well, Paul said, who is Paul and who is Apollos? But ministers through whom you believed as the Lord gave to each one. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. So then neither he who plants is anything, nor he who waters, but God who gives the increase. Now, he who plants and he who waters are one. In other words, we're laboring, as Paul will say. And each one will receive his own reward according to his own labor. For we are God's fellow workers. Then he said this, you are God's field, Corinthians. You are God's building. In other words, God has taken the responsibility over our lives to build us up and teach us and instruct us and, yes, indeed, change us. In the image of Jesus Christ. So we're praying not only for us as believers, but also for you who might be here this morning and those that will come who don't know Christ, that you will be drawn to Jesus Christ, that you will be reconciled to God through the cross, and that you will finally surrender yourself, listen, just as you are, to Jesus Christ, and then let Him take control of your life and watch what He can do. It's fabulous. So the building of the church, number one, we're praying that by the grace of God, our prayers would be turned into action. James says this, chapter 1, verse 21. Therefore, laying aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word and not hearers only deceiving yourselves. That's important to hear. Deceiving yourself. In other words, we can hear the word and actually be deceiving ourselves about the word. So he says, for if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, here's the deception, he is like a man observing his natural face in a mirror, for he observes himself, goes away, and he immediately forgets what kind of man he was. Now, In the material, physical life, I think a lot of us look in the mirror and we're happy to forget what we see when we walk away from it. Can I hear an amen? But he's talking spiritually. If we look, and listen to what he says. He who look, but he who looks into the perfect law of liberty. That's what he's calling God's word. The perfect law of liberty. He who the son sets free is free indeed. You shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. So James says, he who looks into the perfect law of liberty, the mirror of God's word, and continues in it, and is not a forgetful hearer, but is a doer of, but a doer of the work. Now, he doesn't say a doer of the word. Interesting. A doer of the work. In other words, God's word directs us to action. So he says there, look into the perfect law of liberty, continue in it. Not forget, but do what you've been prompted to do in obedience to God. This one will be blessed in what he does. So the prayer side of things for me, and I hope for us, is that we will be praying into action. There are three words that I will use to preface our studies. In hopes of stirring up our minds into action. They are, number one, instruction secondly inspiration and third intention so the question that comes with the in words is are you all in in praying toward action you see james says it's deceptively easy to be in with instruction that is by saying i think about changing Uh, It's deceptively easy to say, I'm in with the inspiration. That is, I feel like changing. It's deceptively easy to say, hey, I'm in with intention. That is, to say, I will change. But in the third of this triad, intention. Intention needs to have traction. And the traction is Obedience. We must go beyond intention, be it sincere and good intention, to the traction of obedience. Like Daniel, who purposed in his heart not to defile himself with the king's meat, his life was lived in doing that. And you look at Daniel's life, and he lived a long time, and he lived through some desperate times in Israel, He lived in a pagan culture, but he kept his heart. He purposed in his heart not to defile himself, and then he didn't. You see, that's action. And don't think it was easy for Daniel. Praying must be more than imagining change on good intentions alone. A flourishing garden requires patient labor and attention. Plants do not grow merely to fulfill good intentions. How many of you wish they did? They thrive because someone expended a lot of energy on that garden. No one would remember the good Samaritan if he only had good intentions. How many good intentions, may I ask, have you put in the deep freeze? Those plans to make changes in your life when you really know you're not going to change or make the changes. And so I want to stir all of us up by way of reminder that as goes the Holy Spirit in his instruction, as goes the Holy Spirit in his inspiration, as goes the Holy Spirit in his intention for us, so goes the obedient traction of hearing the word with a noble and good heart, and as Jesus said, keeping it and bearing fruit. As Jesus also said, that we build our lives on the rock by hearing the word and simply said, doing it. To the many of you who are in home groups, I hope that as you gather, as I gather with my home group, that we'll be spurring one another on to, to love and good deeds. That we'll be those that are daily exhorting one another so that sin doesn't deceive us, our hearts don't deceive us. I'm praying that over this course of the next 10 weeks, that there'll be a, a unity that is developing. And let me say this, it has to be around the word of God. As it is, we're giving the Holy Spirit the substance of what he can then use to transform our lives as the church. And so may we be mindful of those three words. The final word is loving. You see, over the building of the church, we have to raise the banner of God's love. In Song of Solomon, he said, his banner over me is love. The psalmist in chapter 20, verse 5 said, we will rejoice in your salvation and in the name of our God, we will set up our banners. Can you hear an amen? In other words, the sole reason that we are able to consider these things at all is because God loves us. God loves you. God loves me. And thus the flag, the banner over this whole of the church is the love of God who himself has set us apart as his holy, special, precious people. In 1 John chapter 4, verse 9, in this the love of God was manifested toward us that God has sent his only begotten son into the world that we might live through him. In this is love not that we love god i love this verse in this is love not that we love god that's just smart that just makes sense but in this is love not that we love, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the substitute sacrifice for our sins that god so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son into the world that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life that's the banner it's the banner of God's love demonstrated by sending his son into the world for you and for me. That's love. And that's the target of our lives is to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ and to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge that we might be filled with all the fullness of God. To know his love, the width and length and depth and height. It, em- it, 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 it embellish, it, what's the word I want? Encompasses all of life, that God loves you and God loves me. Now, First John goes on to say, if someone says I love God, and hates his brother, now John doesn't mince words. John the Beloved, he says, if someone says I love God and hates his brother. By the way, if you read First John, he has five times. If someone says, if someone says, see, it's easy to say, to say something. If someone says, well, I love God, but hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? You see, the love of God is in action. It's in demonstrating a self-sacrificial caring for someone else. And this is the commandment we have from him, that he who loves God must love his brother also. Jesus said, By this shall all men know that you are my disciples by the love that you have for one another. Jesus said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like unto it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And then he said this, on these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Take your Bible. You want to know what it says? Love God and love your neighbor. How can we do that? Because God first loved us. Love is the fulfilling of the the law. And so this banner looks like this. As a temple, we are worshipers who love God. As a home, we are family members who love one another. As a school, we are disciples who love truth. And as an embassy, we are ambassadors who love the lost. So we want to raise this banner over the building of the church right at the beginning. God so loved us, and this is love. And so the building of the church, the building of sanctification, were worshipers who loved God. The temple speaks of God's presence among his people. It's God dwelling with his people. So God instructed Moses to build the tabernacle where he would dwell among his people. As it was completed, what happened? God's glorious presence filled the tabernacle. Later on, David said, I want to build God a house. I want to build God a temple. And God said, well, you can't do that, but your son will do that. So David gathered all the materials, but Solomon built the house. And when Solomon was all done with that temple, he dedicates the temple. Reread read this in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 10. And it came to pass when the priest came out of the holy place... The cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priest could not continue ministering because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. Would you not have loved to have seen that? The presence of God filling the temple. The presence of God filling the tabernacle. Now, here's the fantastic thing. When Jesus came into the world, do you know what we read about him? It says in John chapter 1, beginning of verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, speaking of Jesus. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word became flesh, and what? Literally, tabernacled among us. And what did we behold? We beheld His glory, the glory as the only begotten Son of God. Who is in the bosom of the Father, meaning it's the heart of God, Jesus declared him. (laughs) It blows my mind that God tabernacled in flesh and blood to dwell with sinners in order to reconcile them to God. We read this in the building of the church, we just read it, in whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. That's you and me. In whom you also are being built together as what? A habitation of God, a dwelling place of God in the spirit. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16. Do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the spirit of God dwells in you? You know, it's one thing to be marveling at God becoming human flesh. But then God takes it to the next, and he fills us with his spirit. Now he dwells in us. Do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the spirit of God dwells in you? He says, if anyone defiles the temple of God, God will destroy him. For the temple of God is holy, which temple you are. He goes on in chapter 6 of First Corinthians, verse 19. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the holy spirit who is in you whom you have from god and you are not your own for you were bought with a price therefore here it is glorify god in your body and in your spirit which are gods it's a calling to holiness to glorifying god and so the building of sanctification in 1st Thessalonians chapter 4 verse 3 He says very simply, for this is the will of God, your sanctification. You want to know what the will of God is for us as the church? It's sanctification. Now, what is sanctification? Let me share what sanctification is. Holiness is the presence of God in sanctification. We'll come back to several times. What is holiness? It is the presence of God in sanctification. Now, we'll, we'll define these two words in a moment. He wrote, this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you should abstain from sexual immorality. You see, that's always been a major problem through all of of man's sinfulness, that each of you should know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, your temple of the Holy Spirit. We should know how to, again, our own vessel in sanctification. He says, Not in passion of lust, like the Gentiles. Here's the difference. The Gentiles who do not know God. For God did not call us to uncleanness, but listen, in holiness. He doesn't say to holiness. He says in holiness. Therefore, he who rejects this does not reject man, but God who has given us his Holy Spirit. In other words... When it comes to a relationship with God, holiness is not an option. It is necessity. We can't reject this sanctification, holiness process that God has for us. So sanctification is the process of being made holy. The Bible declares that holiness is beautiful. In, Psalm, in, in First Chronicles and in the Psalms, Oh, worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. C.S. Lewis said this, quote, How little people know who think that holiness is dull. When one meets the real thing, it is irresistible. It's beautiful. For most believers, unquote, For most believers, holiness is a concept that evokes mixed emotions. And at best, it seems to remain shrouded in mystery. But listen, no word better captures the beauty and splendor and glory of God than holiness. And secondly, no word better captures the beauty and purpose and glory in which God has called us. Holiness. Holiness. You see, the call to pursue holiness is a beautiful invitation. It's an invitation to experience the blessings and joys of intimacy with God. It's an invitation to be free from the weight of sin and its burdens. Holiness is an invitation to become all God created us to be. It's something to be pursued, not not try and run from. As such, personal holiness is more desirable than happiness. You know, we're such a happy-seeking people. Someone once said, you know, marriage isn't to make you happy, it's to make you holy. (laughs) We get the chuckles, we understand it, we get it, (laughs) we've been there. Holiness is more desirable than happiness. The temple speaks of the presence of God. Holiness is the presence of God in sanctification. The temple is where worshipers of God gather. And in the second part of the temple, we want to look at wholeness because God wants us complete. But you see, wholeness is the presence of God in sacrifice and service. We're going to look at that in our next study. So holiness and wholeness are the two words of the temple. Holiness is the presence of God in sanctification. Sanctification is the real change in man from the sordidness of sin to the purity of God's image. So I want to give you three factors. We're going to spend most of our time on the first one. But three factors in the building of sanctification, this process of being made holy. The first one is God is holy. God is holy. If we're going to be sanctified, we must understand and get it. Excuse me, that God is holy. Excuse me. (laughs) What does to be holy mean? It means to be distinct, separate, in a class by oneself. The basic idea conveyed by the holiness of God is his separateness. It is his uniqueness, his distinction as holy other. That's both H-O-L-Y and W-H-O-L-L-Y. Holy Other. The one who stands apart from and far above the creation, the one who cannot be confused with the gods devised by man's imaginations. He is wholly separate, wholly unique. Other words that further our understanding of holy is to be sanctified. It means to be sacred. It means to be consecrated. Consecration means dedicated to a sacred purpose. It means to belong to God. And listen to it in another way that it's it's defined. To be a loyal servant. Psalm 99, starting in verse 3. Let them praise your great and awesome name He is holy. Verse 5, exalt the Lord our God and worship at his footstool. He is holy. Verse 9, exalt the Lord our God and worship at his holy hill. For the Lord our God is holy. God's holiness denotes the glory and majesty of his person. R.C. Sproul said this, quote, The Bible says that God is holy holy holy, holy. Not that he is merely holy or even holy, holy. He is holy, holy, holy. The Bible never says that God is love, love, love or mercy, mercy, mercy or wrath, wrath, wrath or justice, justice, justice. It does say that he is holy, holy, holy. The whole earth is full of his glory. Standard Bible Encyclopedia says, quote, This threefold proclamation of the holy nature of God is significant for its uniqueness. No other attribute is so treated. He is holy. The true and living God is holy in relation to every aspect of his nature and character. In other words, when we speak of God being holy, it is not just part of a list of his attributes It is the list. He is holy. Holy comprises all of who God is in his nature, in his character, and in his will. It is no exaggeration to state that holiness is the outshining of every aspect. You know, I I read this list, and it just gets me choked up to think that I know God, that God knows me. It's no exaggeration that the holiness holiness, the outshining of every aspect, listen, of the eternal, infinite, transcendent, immutable, all-powerful, all-knowing, everywhere present, self-existent, self-sufficient, and sovereign God. Whew. He is holy, separate, unique, and we need to worship him in the beauty of holiness. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Revelation. His word is holy. His name is holy. Holy Father, holy Jesus, holy Son, holy Spirit. His love is holy love. His goodness is holy goodness. His mercy is holy mercy. His grace is holy grace. His freedom is holy freedom. His justice is holy justice. His wisdom is holy wisdom. His jealousy is holy jealousy. His wrath is holy wrath. He is God, holy, holy, holy. And so God is holy. Secondly, God's holiness demands exclusive worship. Not one that is shared with any other thing, any other deity of man's devisings. This demand is clearly declared in the first two commandments. Exodus chapter 20, You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them. Isaiah 42, 8, I am the Lord, that is my name, and my glory I will not give to another, nor my praise to carved images. He says in Malachi chapter 2, 2, if you will not hear, if you will not take it to heart to give glory to my name, says the Lord of hosts, I will send a curse upon you, and I will curse your blessings. Yes, I have cursed them already because you do not Take it to heart. This demand, exclusive worship, makes it clear that God is not remote or aloof in His holiness. In fact, nothing could be further from the truth. God, in His holiness, is wholly righteous, He is intimately involved in the affairs of His creatures. He responds, yes, at times with holy mercy and grace, at times with holy discipline and rebuke, and at times with holy wrath and anger. None can hide from the holy righteous God. None of his dealings with creatures escapes his notice. Hebrews 4.13 says, and there is no creature hidden from his sight, But all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Psalm 11, verse 4 says, The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes behold. His eyelids test the sons of men. The Lord tests the righteous, but the wicked and the one who loves violence, his soul hates. Upon the wicked he will rain coals, fire and brimstone, and a burning wind shall be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteousness. His countenance beholds the upright. In Psalm 34, verse 15, the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the remembrance of them from the earth. You see, God's holiness demands exclusive worship. And the third thing about God's holiness, it denotes his moral perfection. In other words, his absolute freedom from blemish of any kind. Paul asked the question to the Romans, chapter 9, verse 14. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? You know what he said? He said it in Romans a couple times. He said, perish the thought. Forget it. Psalm 5, 4. You are not a God who takes pleasure in wickedness, nor shall evil dwell with you. Psalm 92.15, the Lord is upright, he is my rock, and there is no unrighteousness in him. Psalm 145.17, the Lord is righteous in all his ways. Now here's the caveat, the, the trailer. Gracious in all his works. Oh, were it not for the mercy and grace of God in his holiness. Habakkuk one thirteen, you are of purer eyes than to behold evil and cannot look. On wickedness, Zephaniah 3.5 The Lord is righteous in her midst. He will do no unrighteousness. Jesus put it simply this. Your father in heaven is perfect. To be holy is to be distinct, separate, in a class by oneself. God's holiness denotes the glory and majesty of his person. God's holiness demands exclusive worship. And God's holiness denotes his moral perfection. So as the angels there in Isaiah chapter 6 are reiterating the pronouncement, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And there is Isaiah having that that experience. It brought upon Isaiah the overpowering awareness of his own sinfulness. And do you know what Isaiah said? He said, woe is me. For I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. He said, woe is me. A great gulf was fixed between him, a mortal, sinful man, and the holy God, creator and Lord over all. Were it not for God's mercy, Isaiah knew he would be toast. Speaking of toast, there's actually a story about two priests, Adab and Nab. Aaron's sons, Adab and Nabahu, who were to be going in and offering the sacrifices. And you know what it says about them? They were offering strange fire. Some believe they were drinking. Others believe they they were profaning in other ways. We know that they also had problems right at the gate of the temple. Aaron didn't rebuke them. And so they're offering strange fire. And you know what God did? He actually made them toast. Fire killed them. Now, Aaron, their dad, how do you think he's feeling right about now? Now, he knew these things about his sons. But I don't care what's going on with your children. As a dad, it doesn't matter how it all comes down. You still love them. But you know what happened? Moses said to Aaron, this is what the Lord spoke, saying, By those who come near me, I must be regarded as holy. And before all the people, I must be glorified. And then it says this, so Aaron, their dad, held his peace. You see, Aaron understood the holiness of God. He understood what it means to be in the presence of God. Now, it wasn't just Isaiah that experienced this overwhelming uh, awareness of his of sin, sinfulness in the presence of God. Right at the beginning, when Adam and Eve sinned, they hid themselves from the presence of God. The children of Israel said to Moses, let, don't let God speak to us lest we die. Moses said to God, don't let me see my wretchedness. Gideon said, alas, O Lord, alas, in the presence of God. Manoah, Samson's dad, said to his wife, we shall surely die, we've seen the Lord. The men of Beth you know what they did? They stole the Ark of the Covenant. And in having the Ark of the Covenant, God's enemies, they started having problems with tumors. What they were, we don't know. But they were having problems, so they'd move it to another city, and they'd have the problem. There'd be outbreaks of these, whatever it was. And so as this is happening from one city to the next, and then the final says, hey, don't bring that thing here. Because that was the presence of God. They said, who is able to stand before this holy Lord God? They got it. David, when Uzzah stretched out his hand to touch the ark and steady it, was smitten dead. It says of David, he was afraid of the Lord that day. Job said, I abhor myself in dust and ashes. I repent. Daniel said, no strength remained in me. My vigor was turned to frailty. I retain no strength. Habakkuk said, when I heard my body trembled, my lips quivered, rottenness entered my bones, I trembled in myself, in the presence of a holy God. The disciples on the Mount of Transfiguration, it says they fell in fear, trembling, when the voice came from the presence, the Shekinah glory of God. Simon Peter, in recognizing the purity and holiness of Jesus, fell at his feet and said, Lord, depart from me, I'm a sinful man. And John in Revelation, when he saw Jesus there, the glory of God, it says, I fell at his feet as dead. None of these died though they all lived to tell about it. Why? Because they all got it. They all got it. They were fearfully aware in the holy presence of God that he is wholly perfect, and they were not. From Adam to John, Genesis to Revelation, all were fearfully aware of the great gulf and the great guilt that stood between them and a holy God. All were fearfully aware that God would be perfectly just to permanently condemn them to death right there on the spot. They all got it, and we need to get it. Certainly we are fearfully and wonderfully made and that our souls know right well. But are we fearfully aware that we are wholly flawed in sin? Wholly flawed by sin? Are we fearfully aware of the great gulf and our great guilt before a holy God? Are we fearfully aware that God would be perfectly just to permanently condemn us to death on the spot? God is holy. Three factors in sanctification. Factor number one is the fear factor. Woe is me. God is holy. If I'm going to experience the presence of God, it's in sanctification, first of all, that he is holy and I am not. Were it not for his mercy, factor number two, we'll get in a moment, were it not for his mercy, I would perish. The fear of the Lord, by the way, that phrase, the fear of the Lord, 27 times in my Bible is the beginning of wisdom and knowledge of the Holy One understanding. The greatest wisdom on this earth is holiness. Ecclesiastes 12, 13. Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God. Get this. Fear God in my Bible 27 times. Fear God. He said, that's the conclusion. Tried everything he could in life, Solomon. Gave himself to anything and everything. He said, here's the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments. Why? For for this is man's all. Fear God. Jesus said, and I say to you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body. And after that, have no more that they can do. But I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has power to cast into hell. Yes, I say to you, fear him. Get this, fear him, that little phrase, 27 times in my Bible. I'm going, woo, this is cool. Why? Because this last one, the first three times, God say, don't fear man. And then 24 times says, fear him, fear him, fear him, fear him, fear God. You see, that's sanctification. That's the process of being made holy. is understanding the fear factor. Woe is me in the presence of a holy God. None of them died. They all lived to tell about it. But you see, they all got it. They all understood it. In Revelation chapter 117, you see, God did not deal with us according to our iniquities. And I, John, saw him. I fell at his feet as dead. But he laid his right hand on me saying, do not be afraid. Oh, the wonder of God reconciling us to himself through the cross. Do not be afraid. He said, I am the first and the last. I am he who lives and was dead. And behold, I live forevermore. And then he said this, and I have the keys of Hades and of death. Who can unlock the chambers of death? who saved us from hell, only Jesus. And so, yes, we need this awesome awareness, the fear factor, fear God, fear him, the fear of the Lord needs to be the first foundational part of understanding sanctification, that God is holy. I love this story of the thief on the cross. And as the two are hanging there on either side of Jesus, they're ridiculing him a little bit, but then it seems as that that one thief Began to acknowledge and realize, you know, I'm going to die. And it says that he rebuked the other thief and said, Do you not fear God? Seeing you're under the same condemnation, and we indeed justly for receive the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. Now I can read that pretty simply. You're hanging on a cross. Do you think he's wrestling these words out? You bet he is. But he got it. Do you not fear God? He realized, I'm going to die. I'm going to stand before God. He had no hope there except to turn to Christ. And he realized, as he said, but this man has done nothing wrong. He heard all those things that Jesus was saying from the cross. Then he said to Jesus, Lord... Remember me when you come into your kingdom. Have you said that to the Lord? You can say that. And Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. You know, you might think that you need to be baptized to be saved. This tells me you don't. You may think you need to do this, that, and the other to be saved. No, you need to say, Jesus, remember me. I get it. I understand. I deserve this, but you didn't. But you received that for me. Amen again. The fear factor leads us to the second factor, which is that God sets apart, sanctifies his people. In other words, holiness is what God has given to us in setting us apart as his people. We are a holy nation, a royal priesthood. We are a people precious to God. And so this is the the, factor number two is the mercy factor. That God chose me. And God chose you. Now maybe you're here this morning and say, well, how do I know God chose me? You need to turn to Jesus. Confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus Christ. Believe in your heart that God raised from the dead and you shall be saved. Well, what if I don't want to do that? Well, then maybe God didn't choose you. Well, wait a second. See, it's your choice. Turn to God and you will be saved. And we read in 1 Peter, we are a chosen by God and precious. He says we had not obtained mercy, but now we've obtained mercy. Psalm 5, 7 says, but as for me, I will come into your house in the multitude of your mercy. In fear of you, I will worship toward your holy temple. Mark that passage, would you? It encapsulates what we're looking at in the holiness of God. Psalm 5, 7. In his holy mercy, God did not deal with us according to our iniquities. You see, when we understand the fear factor, we get who God is. It leads us now to what God has done for us. Separated us out by his mercy. Sanctified us as his own special and precious people. Titus chapter 3 and verse 3. For we ourselves were also once foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. But when the kindness and the love of God our Savior appeared unto men, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us how through the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the holy spirit he poured out us abundantly through his spirit the lord jesus christ having been justified by his grace which brings us to the third factor like i said i'm not going to spend much time because it takes us right into our next study god says to his people be holy the factor here is a deciding factor. Is it going to be conformed or transformed? Romans chapter 12, verse 1 says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, what? Holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world but be transformed by the renewing of your minds that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. We'll look at this in our next part. I, the Lord your God, I am the Lord your God, therefore consecrate yourselves and you shall be holy for I am holy. Do you know what consecration is? Consecration is dedication to sanctification. Consecration is dedication to sanctification. It's the whole thing about intention being action. D.A. Carson, a Canadian theologian, said this. Please listen as I'm closing the study. Quote, People do not drift toward holiness. Apart from grace-driven effort... People do not gravitate toward godliness, prayer, obedience to Scripture, faith, and delight in the Lord. It doesn't just happen. That's my words. We drift toward compromise and call it tolerance. We drift toward disobedience and call it freedom. We drift toward superstition and call it faith. He writes, we slouch (laughs) toward prayerlessness and delude ourselves into thinking we have escaped legalism. We slide toward godlessness and convince ourselves that we have been liberated. Here are some other quotes from some old guys that we would all do well to acquaint ourselves with because these proven old guys will challenge us to holy living. William Wilberforce, quote, there is no shortcut to holiness. It must be the business of our lives. Robert Murray McShane, a Scottish minister, quote, a holy man is an awful weapon in the hands of God. E.M. Bounds, I've read all of his books, I think. He focuses on prayer. E.M. Bounds, it is not great talents or great learning or great preachers that God needs, but men Great in holiness. And finally, Leonard Ravenhill, an English evangelist, wrote, quote, The normal, this one, this one is a little bit, you know, I don't like it a whole lot, okay? The normal Christian life is holiness. Anything less is sickness. Wow. So this takes us into how are we Transformed. How does this process of God's holiness, holiness in the presence of God is sanctification. As I'm being sanctified, God set me apart to make me holy. Those three factors, the fear factor, the mercy factor, and the deciding factor. The call to pursue holiness is a beautiful invitation. It's an invitation to experience the blessing and joys of intimacy with God. It's an invitation to be free from the weight and the burden of sin. It's an invitation to become all that like God's created us to be. As such, personal holiness is more desirable than happiness. So the temple is where worshipers gather. In our next study, wholeness in the presence of God, you want to know what that means in the presence of God? Is sacrifice and service. We're going to look next, in our next study a week from, two weeks from today. So again, if you would listen to one more quote In closing, David Brainerd, an American missionary to Native Americans, said this, and this quote will be with you in your home group. It's on the notes that we sent. He said, quote, there are those times when God has been pleased to keep my soul hungry almost continually. There have been those times when I have been filled with a kind of pleasing pain. When I really enjoy God, I feel my desires of him the more insatiable and my thirsting after holiness the more unquenchable. And the Lord will not allow me to feel as though I were fully supplied and satisfied, but keeps me still reaching forward. I feel barren and empty as though I could not live without more of God. I feel ashamed as guilty before him. Oh, I see that the law is spiritual. I am carnal, sold under sin. I do not, he writes, I cannot live to God. Oh, for holiness. Oh, for more of God in my soul. Oh, for more of this pleasing pain. May God help us in our walks with him as believers, as the church of God, to be those who understand that holiness in the presence of God is a sanctified life that we'll look more at in our next study. Stand with me and let's spend a little time before the Lord in closing. And I think it needs to be a time right now that we are going to close our hearts in before the Lord. And Father, Holy Father, we come in Jesus' name We have access by faith into this grace in which we stand. By one spirit, we have access. That Lord, you have saved, I pray everyone in this room, but a majority in this room. And in so doing, you have filled us with your Holy Spirit. And our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And that we, the church, are being built up as a temple for your dwelling. And so, Lord, I believe it's right now to worship you and lift our eyes to you and our hearts to you because though you are holy, yet in holy mercy you have saved us. We have, who had not obtained mercy, have obtained it. And, Lord, we get it. We understand it. We thank you for it. And as we worship For anyone here that does not know you, Lord, may you again draw them to yourself. As we your people worship you in spirit and truth. And I pray, Lord, that you'd hear the heart of our the cry of our hearts after you. You said you hear the hearts, you hear the cries of your people. Lord, please. We want to be a holy people as you've instructed us. So, Lord, where we've been thinking about change, where we've been feeling like change. We even said, I'm going to change, but Lord, it hasn't happened. I pray now in Jesus' name that you would take hold of this area in our lives. As we present our bodies as living sacrifice, holy, acceptable, that Lord, you would be able to close that gap, your good, acceptable, and perfect will, and bridge it for us that we might indeed be changed and be doing the things. By the power of the Holy Spirit, transform us, Lord, by the renewing of our minds, please. So I encourage us as a church and individually, just let's bring our hearts to the Lord in worship. Let us worship at his holy hill, for he is holy. Let's do it, Joe.